Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. When the 1960s ended, San Francisco's Haight-Asbury District reverted to a high-rent area, and many of the previous residents, well, mainly what our culture calls hippies, moved down the coast to Santa Cruz. And there they had children and they got married, but they didn't name their children Melissa or Brett. People in the mountains around Santa Cruz grew accustomed to their children playing frisbee and other games with children named Time Warp and Spring Fever, and eventually Moonbeam, Earth Love, and Precious Promise all ended up in public school. That's when the kindergarten teachers first met a boy named Fruit Stand. Every fall, according to tradition, parents bravely apply name tags to their children. They kiss them goodbye and send them off to school on the bus. And so it was for Fruit Stand. The teachers thought the boy's name was odd at first, but they tried to make the best of it. Would you like to play with the blocks, Fruit Stand, they offered? And later, Fruit Stand, how about a snack? He accepted hesitantly. At the end of the day, his name didn't seem much odder than Tiger Lilies or Sun Rays. At dismissal time, the teachers led the children out to the buses. Fruit stand, do you know which bus is yours? He didn't answer. But this wasn't strange. He hadn't answered them all day. And lots of children are shy on the first day of school. Well, it didn't matter. The teachers had instructed the parents to write the names of their children's bus stops on the reverse side of their name tags. And the teacher simply turned over the tag. And there, neatly printed, was the word Anthony. Oh, my. The assumption of those teachers on that first day of school made for a little bit of a tough day for Anthony. We need to be careful about making assumptions. And our text today warns us against assuming where we or anyone else stands as guests to God's great banquet table. Today we are continuing our series on God's great banquet. This banquet is one of the marvelous images that God uses to describe the fulfillment of His promises and the gathering of His people to heaven. Last week we looked at the promises of His banquet in Isaiah 25, and this week our text is a little bit more ominous. It's one we don't always like to read, but my hope is that you'll be encouraged by what Jesus says about the guests of His banquet. God wants his banquet table to be full. He has space for everyone. If you feel like there's not a place for you at God's banquet table, there is a place for you. But there's also a warning. Do not take for granted your invitation to God's table. So let's read the text. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. When one of those who were at the table with Jesus heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for the banquet is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, Well, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And then another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. 
Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is one of those stories um, that's a little more uncomfortable than most of us care for. We don't like hearing that there are guests who are shut out of the banquet. We don't like hearing about those guests that will not even get to taste one bite of what has been prepared. This story has much to tell us about who is invited to God's great banquet, and it has a warning about our attitudes towards our invitation to the party. Now, I want to just help us see the context of the passage. See, Jesus tells the story of being invited to God's great banquet while he himself is a dinner guest at a Pharisee's house. So he is at a banquet himself. Remember, the Pharisees were people in Israel that followed a strict a strict regiment of rules, trying to obey God's laws perfectly. That's how they wanted to be seen as worthy for God. The problem was they became obsessed with obedience to the rules and forgot about actually having a relationship with God. They measured their righteousness by their personal goodness rather than by God's mercy. So Jesus is a guest at a Pharisee's house, and he challenges them on their obsession over obedience. And he asks questions like, should you heal someone on the Sabbath when you're not to do any work? He challenges their ability to selectively obey God's law when it best suits themselves. He challenges their perceptions about self-righteousness and who is worthy and honorable. Jesus spends the meal turning the conventional thinking of a Pharisee upside down. And with that in mind, we can go back to our first verse, verse 15. And you can hear the tone in the voice of that one dinner guest sitting, sitting at the table, because the room is tense now. Jesus has been turning the Pharisees' perceptions upside down. No one has answers for Jesus' questions. And it's one of those awkward silences where it's hard to know what to say. And then come the words from just another random guest who says, Blessed is the one who will eat the feast of the kingdom of God. Well, what's meant by these words? It's simple. In that sentence, you can hear something like, well, well, that's, that's good for you to say, Jesus, but blessed is the one who will eat the feast of the kingdom of God. You could hear him saying, I know we're not perfect. I know we've made mistakes, but we're Israelites. We're the chosen people. How wonderful it will be for all of us to eat at God's feasts. We have our invitations already. Surely Jesus can agree with how wonderful it will be to eat at that feast. But Jesus responds to his dinner guests with a warning. A warning not to make any assumptions about who will be at God's great banquet. And I need you to hear this important truth. There is room for you. There is room for you at the banquet table of God. But do not take his invitation for granted. You must act as an invited guest. Jesus tells a story. In response to that, that question, that, that statement made, you know, blessed is the one who will eat the feast of the kingdom of God. And Jesus responds with a story. We've read it already. The great banquet. And he says, there's a certain man who is preparing this banquet. 
Now, it might sound like a very generic description, but since one of the guests just mentioned the Feast of the Kingdom of God, everybody is thinking about God's feast. They all know that in Jesus' story, that it is God's banquet feast for His people that's being talked about. Matthew chapter, Matthew, The Gospel of Matthew tells us a different version of this very same story. It's a little bit more ominous. We'll look at it next week. But in Matthew's version, we're told it's not just a certain man, but a king prepares the banquet. So what we have here is a person of extreme importance throwing a party, and he sends out the invitations. But these invitations are more of a command than a suggestion. It's like turning down an invitation from your boss at work. Saying no thank you will have consequences with your boss. Now, I want you to understand, two ancient invitations had two steps involved with them. And it's not unlike invitations to weddings and important parties today. In ancient banquets, two invitations were sent out, separate invitations. Um, in an age without refrigeration... Without ways to keep things ready, the host of the party would want to know just how much food would be needed to be purchased, to be prepared. So a first invitation would be sent out. This is similar to our RSVP. This is, the inv- this is an invitation that a person could say no to. They could decline it without consequence. These invitations were sent out months in advance to a banquet. The second invitation came when the banquet was ready. A host would send out servants to bring the guests to the party. It was at this point that refusing an invitation was only acceptable in the case of an extreme emergency. The party's ready now. The food food is paid for. There's no way to save it for later. You are an honored guest. You have to come to the party. To say no at this point was an insult to the host and would bring the host shame in the community. This is the type of scene that Jesus is setting for us. And he then tells us that three respectable citizens of the community refuse the second invitation with unacceptable excuses. The first guest refuses with the, with the reason that, you know, I've just purchased a new property and I need to go examine it. First of all, this would have been a person of some wealth being able to purchase property. They had a lot of means. They could send someone else to check out the property. Secondly, Property was never purchased without examining it beforehand. It would have been checked out before any documents or contracts were signed. Additionally, the guest would have known ahead of time that the banquet was coming. All three of these guests would have known ahead of time that the banquet is coming. They would have planned around it and said, you know, I got to buy this property, but it can wait a day or we'll purchase it early and I'll check it out because I have a banquet I've got to go to. It's not a surprise to them that the feast is coming. At least it shouldn't be a surprise. Besides, the field will be there to check out after the feast is finished. The first guest chooses earthly possessions and personal priorities over the invitation to the great feast. The second guest also refuses. Their claim is that they've just bought five yoke of oxen and are going to try them out. This is another wealthy person. Most people would have one or two oxen, but five pairs is a sign of wealth. Again, the guest would have not purchased the oxen without them being checked out ahead of time, and certainly the oxen would be around after the party is finished. The excuse is also poor. With it, the guest is saying his personal priorities are more important than his obligations to the host of the great feast. The third guest also refuses. I just got married. I'm on my honeymoon. I'm not available. 
this is this is well and good, except that this guest should have refused the first invitation. Now he's refusing at the wrong time. He knew ahead of time whether or not he was going to be married. This isn't something that happens quickly in the Israelite culture. These excuses are also very similar to the ones given in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. These are reasons that God provided as good reasons for a man to stay home from home rather than to go to war. And here's how the text reads. It says, The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home that he may or he may die in battle, and someone else might enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else may marry her. What happened was that though these excuses are good and given by God, eventually the Israelites used them in ways not intended, just like how the Pharisees were using God's law in ways that were not intended. The end result in our story is twofold. The host of the party opens his invitation to those who would never have expected or felt worthy of going to the party. And to those that refuse, those that refuse the invitation, they're blocked out of the banquet. So how are we to avoid becoming like the party guests who missed out on the feast? So I give you three things to think about how to avoid missing out on the feast. First, Choose to see wonder in God's invitation to you. Choose to see wonder in God's invitation to you. As humans, we have a habit of letting the wondrous become ordinary simply because we're around it all the time. When was the last time you saw the wonder of a sunset or a rainstorm or the bloom of a flower? Have you thought about how wonderful it is to be able to take a breath of air and experience life. Well, I know after I say it, now we're all thinking about the wonder of breathing in air. Sometimes things become so common that we forget how special they are. I've read accounts of people who grew up around Niagara Falls that when they move away, or if they move away, they have trouble sleeping. The rush of the falls was a noise that they were no longer aware of when they lived there, but then they moved away and now they hear its silence. My wife was talking about how she never realized how beautiful the hills of southeastern Ohio were until she moved away from them. You know, myself, I grew up in Canton, Ohio. In Canton, Ohio. My hometown uh, just finished up what it's famous for, the Football Hall of Fame. I grew up living less than a mile from the Hall of Fame. Uh, that was how I spent the first 18 years of my life. I have run into many football fans who marvel at hearing how close I live to it. I'm not a football fan. Uh, they don't know that. And so they hear, you live that close to the Football Hall of Fame. You must have, have, done, have been there all the time as a kid. You must have just gone there and visited that museum and participated in all the activities. And the truth is, I never even thought about going. It was just that funny building with a football sticking out of the top. It, all, it had always been there as long as I had been alive. It was common, and so it wasn't interesting to me. I didn't think of it as anything special. In fact, many of the locals in Canton, to many of them, the Football Hall of Fame is more of a nuisance. There are many years when our street and yard had become packed with parked cars as people attended the Hall of Fame game. I remember one neighbor would rope off his yard every year and put up signs, no parking. Another family always went on vacation during Hall of Fame week. They wanted to get out and avoid the crowds. 
When something becomes common, it can lose its specialness. It can lose its wonder. We can fail to see why it's important anymore. Do not let this happen with God. Do not let familiarity with your Bible take away the power in God's Word. Do not let familiarity with the church family diminish the value of being a part of the body of Christ. Do not let a lifetime of religion cause you to complain when God does not meet your priorities. Choose to see the wonder of God. Choose that He is the. Uh, choose to see Him as the Almighty Creator of the universe, and and that He is also. Even though he's a creator of the universe, he's close to you, wanting a relationship with you. Choose to see the wonder of God. Another way we can guard against being poor party guests is this. Keep God's priorities as your priorities. Each guest in the story who refuses to come to the party, they choose their priorities over the hosts. They're telling him, you're not that important to us. We have things, other things that are more important to us. And when someone tells God that he's not important to them, they are brewing trouble. Now, you may not outright be telling God that he is not important to you. Well, maybe you are, but you might not outright be saying so. But examine your priorities. Examine how you spend your time. They will tell you a lot about what you consider to be important. Sometimes we do not even realize our priorities. I remember in college, I was at a Bible study where the leader had each of us bring the trash cans that we kept by our desks uh, to the Bible study, which we thought was odd. And then he had us take a quick check of what was in those trash cans. He told us that the contents of those cans tell a story about how we spend our time and what's important to us. And one person's trash can was full of drafts of a term paper, and another had dozens and dozens, we all kind of laughed, of post-it notes with reminders and to-do lists. So the person was very highly organized, and their trash can told that story. Another was full of soda cans and coffee cups. They were a person who loved to stay up late at night and play video games. Uh, one student's can was empty. They couldn't stand to let their trash sit with its contents overnight. They like starting the day with it clean and empty. There's all kinds of things you can look at in your life that will tell you your priorities. Take a look at your calendar. Look at how you spend your time. It will tell you your priorities. Be careful. It's dangerous to be so consumed with our own priorities that we abandon God's plan. Beth Kreitzer writes these words, How difficult it is for us to turn away from the charms of this world and to give ourselves fully to God. Have you given yourself fully to God, or do your priorities tell another story? Third idea for you to think about how to be a good party guest is do not make assumptions. Do not make any assumptions about who is invited to the party. This story has three guests, and the assumption is there's many more, but has three party guests, and they make an assumption. They assume that they can refuse the host with a poor excuse and still be in good standing with that host. Assumptions can be very dangerous. There's a story of a photographer for a national magazine who is assigned to get photos of a great forest fire. Smoke at the scene hampered him, and he asked his home office to hire a plane. Arrangements were made, and he was told to go at once to a nearby airport where the plane would be waiting. When he arrived at the airport, the plane was there was a plane there warming up near the runway, and he jumped in with his equipment, and he yelled, Let's go! Let's go! And so the pilot swung the plane into the wind, and soon they were in the the air. 
And the, the photographer said, fly over to the north side of the fire you know, and, and, and make three or four low-level passes. And then the pilot turned to him and said, well, why am I doing that? And he says, because I'm t- going to take pictures, cried the photographer. I- I'm a photographer. Photographers take pictures. And then there was a pause. And the pilot said, you mean you're not my instructor? Wow, making assumptions can get us into more trouble than we bargained for. When we make assumptions, we are saying we know what comes next. We know how this will turn out. We know best. The truth is we often know far less than we think. This story contains a warning and a blessing when it comes to our assumptions about God. First, the warning. Never assume that you are part of the in crowd. Never assume that you are special enough on your own to get to get in without an invitation. Never assume that you can be careless with your invitation to the party. Three guests took, took their invitation for granted, and now they have a problem. They're missing out on more than they could possibly imagine. And I've heard more than one person say, God will let me into heaven because I'm a good person. Or, you know, a loving God would never let me suffer in the judgment of hell. The Bible is very clear. No one gets to heaven to the great banquet outside of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says this about Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Remember, Jesus was a guest at the Pharisee's house. Every Jewish person there thought they were going into eternity with God. They assumed by their heritage, by the blood that flowed through their veins, that they had secured their invitation. But Jesus had made it clear. There is no need to make assumptions about how to get to heaven. We can know how we're getting to heaven if we would call on Him as our Lord and Savior and confess our sins and follow Jesus. It's by His blood that we can be saved. And that is the wonder of this story. As much as it is a warning, it's a celebration. We, make the assu- we often make the mistake of assuming who's in and who's out, and this story tells us that the master of the party uh, opens up the invitation. Because Jesus, in, when he tells a story, tells us once that the master hears that there are people who reject the invitation, he says to his servants to go out and invite the crippled, the poor, the blind, the lame, invite the people that everybody calls unwanted. And then he goes a step forward, further and he tells his servants to go out to the roads and the country lanes and invite them, compel them to come to the party. Remember, the Jewish guests at the party where Jesus was sitting were thinking about their chosen status, and Jesus is telling them, now Gentiles, the non-chosen, will be invited in. Isaiah 49 verse 6 was telling Israel this. He says, God is speaking and he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Every seat at the banquet hall is to be full. There is room for everyone. God is inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. Do not assume for one moment that you are too broken, too doubting, too selfish, or too unlovable to be welcomed into the loving arms of God. God has an invitation for you to join him. Will you receive that invitation? Let us pray. Lord, show us the wonder of your invitation to salvation to the great banquet of heaven. 
Renew in us a hunger for you and your blessing. This world offers so much, it is so easy for us to forget how mighty you are and how precious we, each of us, are to you. Lord, help us to make your priorities, your word, our top priority. Lord, help us as we see one another, not to see in our neighbors what we disapprove of and get angry about, but help us to see others as those you are calling out to, offering your invitation to, as special to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.